All right, Brian, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Really happy to be here with you. I appreciate that. So I appreciate your time. It's, I know this can be a super fun conversation just from a, like a nerding out over hypertrophy perspective, but yep. I like to, I want you to give your own intro because frankly, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. I know a little bit, but I like to give a little bit of this like intro of like, why did I ask you to come on the podcast? Because I feel like the listener knows me and they're going to get to know you in a second, but what they might not know is kind of why I wanted you on. And I feel like uh, just from following you mostly through the beginning through Paragon, um, I think I found you through LCK and, you know, the more I watched more of your content, it has just reminded me of a little bit of the path that I've been on, uh, seen a similar evolution in the way you train, the way you speak, some of the principles that you talk about in terms of hypertrophy um, through your introduction and your, your exposure to N1. And then also can also see some of your own thoughts and, you know, uh, kind of permutations of that information come through in your content, which is what we're going to talk about today and just kind of wrestling with this combination of finding out this balance between nerding out to the extreme, but also you have a group program. And so where, how do we kind of reconcile this, like, you know, this optimal versus practical um, balance here, where making some of these nuances more like tangible and applicable to the masses. So I really like that you think that you do that really well. And I do see that we're like in a similar spot in our like growth and learning. And so it's gonna be a fun, uh, fun to chat about. So give us a little rundown of like who you are, how you got into the fitness industry, what's your journey been like and kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. I love the uh, the way you frame that up. I uh, I actually find myself like nodding at pretty much everything you say when I read your stories or listen to you on podcasts too. So I definitely can can feel that alignment that we have here. Um, so the way that I am now with the way that I train and, and my views on things are primarily just a product of the last like five or six years. Um, definitely has a bit of my past in it, but um, I've been training now for almost 25 years, like 24 and change. Started in 1997, and I was 15 years old, a prepubescent white kid trying to make varsity on the basketball squad. And uh, I wasn't just prepubescent, I was small. And it wasn't until like 11th grade that I actually finally hit puberty. So weights were really the only thing that I had going for me that allowed me to compete with a lot of the, the bigger guys that were further along in that maturing process. Um, so initially, I started with whatever I, I I knew to do, which was basically the circuit gym thing we had in the basement of our uh, high school. And uh, I just did like, you know, three sets of 10 of five or six different movements three times a week. And it worked like everything does. Um, but because I wasn't quite fully pubescent yet, it didn't work as well as I would have loved it to work. Um, and then kind of that journey, it, it became a passion of mine, like super hard in around 11th grade basketball, which had been my passion forever, um, actually got put on the back burner. And midway through season, I told my coach, I was like, Hey, I can't do this anymore. Like, you know, 12 hours of practice a week, plus games and all this stuff. I was like, it's really, it's really messing up with my, my physique goals here, bro. So, uh, so I took the rest of the 11th grade basketball season off focused on training and just developing my knowledge there as much as I could at the time. I mean, it was like the year 2000 and, uh, ended up uh, coming back playing senior year making all conference and I was finally like in puberty so I was I was big enough to, to do that too which was cool went to college um, had the option to play like d3 basketball but opted to go to a d1 school and just party more or less um, had a lot of fun continued to lift weights but it was definitely 
more about just being a bro going to the gym and like flip-flops sometimes hung over and just hitting arms or whatever. Like I still hit every muscle group. Maybe I'd skip leg day sometimes, but, but, uh, but for the most part I was consistent. It just wasn't like top priority. And, uh, I did major in exercise science, sports management, uh, graduated in there really wanted to go into exercise based profession, but everything that I found post school was, like $32,000 a year. And it was like, okay, what's the upper end? Like 10 years from now, like, where could I be? And everything was like, oh, well, if you become like the head athletic trainer or head head coach of the strength training program, you know, maybe 80 or hundred K something like that. And, uh, and I, it wasn't that that's bad money. Like I was like, yeah, if I can make 80 or hundred, that's great. But I didn't want to start at 32. All my friends were starting at 50, 55, whatever, you know, government, corporate jobs, stuff like that. And uh, so I ended up doing the same. I went into recruiting, made some pretty good money for two or three years, but ultimately, uh, it wasn't it wasn't for me. So my college roommate is a guy named Anders Varner. Uh, he runs the Barbell Shrugged podcast. And uh, in 2009, he decided to move out to San Diego, where I was living at the time. And uh, we had a really drunk night in Vegas, where we're like, you know, it must be 4 a.m. and like the sun's about to come up, like varsity blues moment, you know. And um, and he's like, dude we need to start a CrossFit gym. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, whatever. We both totally forgot about it. And then like two weeks later, we're sitting on the couch watching baseball or basketball or something. And he's like, Hey, remember that thing I said about the gym? We got to do that. We started going, uh, walking up and down Garnett Ave, which was the main drag in Pacific beach, San Diego. We found a spot. And three weeks later, we had written a business plan, gotten funding, started a CrossFit gym. And, uh, April of 2010, we launched, uh, CrossFit Pacific Beach, which turned out to be one of the best things I ever did in my life because it got me into the fitness industry. Um, eight months later, I was able to quit my corporate job. So I had an eight month period where I was doing both training and uh, corporate life. That was really hard, but quit the corporate job, did training full time, kind of did a pretty good job of establishing myself in the CrossFit space. Um, I've coached two athletes to the CrossFit games and 75 plus athletes to regionals over the course of the years that regionals was a thing in CrossFit. And, uh, after that kind of found my way out of CrossFit, lost the passion for it in about 2016, 2017, sold my portion of the gym and delve super deep into the hypertrophy world, which I think is what we're mostly going to talk about. Did you, a couple, a couple things I'm, I'm laughing at, uh, 11th grade you, because that is the exact same time that I really picked things up. And the funny thing about the basketball is I was playing soccer and lacrosse, which were spring and fall sports. And then in the winter, I played basketball. And there was just a there came a point where like I was no longer excelling at basketball anymore, and I was excelling at the other two. And I remember that that year was the year that I did not play basketball. Instead, spent that entire winter session in the gym, and it was the first time that I had spent like dedicated consecutive months lifting. And it was ultimately when I fell in love with that. Um, so that that is interesting. That's funny. Um, and also went could have played D3 soccer or lacrosse easily, but went to a D1. I went to Binghamton and tried to walk on and walked on for like five right. minutes. And then was like, I suck way too much for this. Yeah. I'd rather party and, and whatever else like stupid 18-year-old me wanted to do. So, yeah, that's funny. That's I, 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 I see that. I'm curious. Um, okay, so you're owning this CrossFit, <clears throat> you're owning this CrossFit gym successful uh, like objectively at least like you know from the outside looking in you can you have successful uh, athletes that are going to the games and regionals and things are going well and I, you've built your name up at least in that in that space what you said you fell in love with crossfit did you feel did you fall in love with the stimulus did you fall in love or out of love with crossfit did you fall out of love with like the doing it or the 
culture or the the action of owning a gym, what that job was like on a day to day basis? Like, what did you exactly fall in love with? Out of love with? It's a good question, and it was it was honestly a bit of all of it. So, um, man, I fell in love with CrossFit because it reminded me of being an athlete again. Like I was in my mid to late twenties, and uh, it was a way for me to feel young and athletic all over again and have something to pursue that had tangible metrics like time, like how many rounds can you get or how quickly can you do something? Um, and that was awesome. I think the ultimate demise was twofold. Um, one was CrossFit is a skill in, in the sense that you have to practice the movements, um, very consistently. The downside to that is that like, if you're just shooting free throws, there's very little fatigue that comes along with practice. But when you practice CrossFit, you're also working out. It doesn't really matter how you structure that. It's still going to feel like a workout. So the, for me, I was training three times a day for, you know, one to two hours each session. There was like a cardiovascular session and a strength session, a skill session. And was it your, just, was it your all goal to be competitive at this time. At, so in the earlier days, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in, so to, in 2011, 12 and 13, I competed at regionals as well, um, on a team. But, uh, then in 14, 15, 16, I was much more in the coaching role. I was kind of like dual athlete coach in the first few years. And then just kind of realizing that like, like with basketball, I'm just like, not that good. So, so let me focus on coaching. Um, and the problem was that I had so much of my identity tied to the ability to do these things. So even once I made that decision that I was going to focus more on the coaching side of things, I still felt like this need to be able to feel like an athlete and, you know, okay, my athletes might be doing this and going to the games, but you know what, there's this one weird workout that I could beat this guy on because it has snatches and muscle ups in it or something like that. So I'm going to fucking beat my client who's going to the games on this one workout, you know? So I was still driving and so much of my identity was tied to this ability that it just ended up having this like snowball effect on my hormone function and on a number of different things. So it all kind of came to a head in 2015. We started, I was already moving out of kind of the love of CrossFit. So we started a, a physique bodybuilding program at my gym and it was running class structure. Like you would run a CrossFit class, but it was basically like a body part split type thing. And I figured I would do a men's physique show to be like the poster boy for this program. And, uh, I knew nothing about evidence-based anything at this point. So I prepped myself up until five weeks out. And then I was like, I should probably like hire a coach who knows something, you know? And, uh, and so I went to the local gym. It was, uh, the world gym, which is, uh, at now it's the gym in, in Pacific beach. It's iconic, uh, bodybuilding gym, like top five in the country probably. And, uh, I went to the local coach there who I didn't even think at the time was just blasted on steroids. Dude was like five, five, like two sixty, shredded, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, Hey, I have this men's physique show. I want to do like help, help me prep, you know? So, uh, he basically put me on an absurdly low amount of calories an absurdly low amount of carbs. I was doing cardio 45 minutes, six days a week, lifting six days a week and walking an hour every day. And my body just completely shit the bed, like the bottom pits. I felt awful when I finished this show. Ooh, when I finished this show, um, it literally took me six months to, to feel back to normal. And I had to go back to training twice a week, full body, like kind of how I got my start. We haven't talked about this, but I started with like 
three compound lifts one day, rest for three days, three compound lifts the next day. And then you have another three days of rest. So basically twice a week, push, pull legs, uh, push, pull legs in each session. Right. So that was how I got my start. I had to do that for six straight months before my body finally felt fine. And then, so enter 2016, I'm like ready to go. I'm going to prepare for the CrossFit open, uh, rev up the engine. I finally feel good. And the first workout I did, I was like, this is awful. I was like, I don't feel good at all. And I just, at that moment, I was like, I'm done competing in CrossFit. Like it's not for me anymore. And then around that same time, Anders and I started having disagreements about the future of the gym because he had also fallen out of love with it, but he had fallen out of love with it in the sense that he wanted to help people rehab from injury. He didn't want to be doing things that potentially were causing injuries um, to people because ultimately it's not that we had bad programming. It was that people come in and think that they're professional CrossFit athletes and they're just like Joe Schmo off the couch and end up getting injured. So it was a dilemma that we had around like 2016 that we both kind of were going our separate ways. And uh, the most prudent move at that point was to, to sell and split up. Yeah, I get that. I also... I also went from maybe being a personal trainer, it's a different route, but personal trainer to like having some understudies and subcontractors to then a couple of friends and I opened our own gym and just it is slightly different sense. Like it fell out of love with the idea of owning a gym and re was reminded very quickly of what I really wanted to do, which is actually work with people. Um, and so there was like a, definitely a moment where like the two of us, me and my partner were like moving in separate ways, one falling a little bit more in love with this, I suppose. And me falling very quickly out. It took me like literally one week into owning the gym. I knew in my heart that this wasn't <laughs> going to work. Um, I think it was one night I had to run. I just, I just think I had to run back to the gym to like do some, something at like mid in the middle of the night. And I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, this isn't what I, and it's fine. It's the other people who are wonderful managers and owners. And I just think that that is a different job than what I was wanting. I thought it was a vertical move. I thought like a trainer, you know, head trainer, owner. I thought that I was moving upward. I was really just changing jobs, you know? It was mm -hmm. just a different, it was a new job. And so I, I definitely I definitely feel you on that. Like at some point I fell out of love of that ownership. Um, yeah, interesting. And, and so did that, at what point were you like, okay, now we're gonna go do hypertrophy. Is this like a natural transition? Like. It was super gradual. So um, in 2017, early 2017, I started my original company called Evolved Training Systems. And it had one subscription program at the time. It was a called the Original Daily Program. And it was meant to be my vision of how you can still have some CrossFit so that you can still have a pieces of your identity tied to it, um, but have more of that focus beyond like strength training and hypertrophy and things that are going to actually a, help your physique, but B, uh, not completely destroy your hormone function. So my original vision of this program was like, you know, you have a compound lift uh, as part A, maybe a, either a second compound lift as part B, or maybe an Olympic lift or something like that. And then there's a part C and maybe part D, but it's less about moving as quickly as possible for long periods of time and more about strategically uh, using energy systems training to still perform a lot of those things that you do in CrossFit, but in a much more like structured and progressive manner. Um, so that was my original vision. And then that was part of my personal transition out of CrossFit was that, that six months to a year where I was kind of hybriding that world. And then about 2000, end of 2017, I, early 2018, I was more deep into like hypertrophy training from its roots and began to slowly move away from identity being tied to any gymnastics or Olympic lifting or anything like that. 
and and when did when did Paragon come about? Because from what I what I see from Paragon, and I've been an advocate. People before I had a group program, it was certainly was one of the ones where I would absolutely direct people to. It looks like kind of what you said, and I know that I don't have the best handle. You're gonna have a better answer on about this than I do, but it looked like a little bit of this bridge where it's like, hey, there's there's some hypertrophy elements here. Hey, there's this would be a great bridge for somebody who's moving out out of CrossFit sort of uh, and moving into something that's like a little bit more rest time a little bit less circuits a little bit less olympic lifts a little bit less gymnastics but still yeah. had a little bit of a thread of like i could tell you and lck were drawing this up you know like yeah yeah, yeah. no totally um i mean uh, always paragon the vision was to to reach the masses and be a bridge sort of initially for other people so the story of paragon real quick how it started is right around the time i was starting evolved uh i was referred LCK as a one-on-one -on -one training client of mine because she needed to kind of find a, a bridge out of CrossFit. And uh, so I helped her with that. And then she fell in love with the programming that we were doing. And she was like, we need to get this to the masses. So in 2018, uh, we started Paragon. And uh, so it's been like almost four years now, but um, it it's like both programs, both Evolved and Paragon started with that bridge program that was kind of like that hybrid. And then as my passions have moved more into in line with physique, I try to incorporate more and more of those like pure physique elements in and take out the things that aren't quite as optimal. Um, but I know like at some point, maybe we'll talk about like the, the kind of fun factor and the, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, definitely. That is a, that is a, I mean, as somebody who's just moved from one-on-one -on -one coaching to a group, some of that, how do we, reconcile those competing elements so that's something we're definitely going to talk about in a bit all right let's move to hypertrophy here we got everybody knows you now it's been 20 minutes we get we know <laughs> brian now let's move on here let's talk about getting jacked um all right so our main topic today is programming for hypertrophy we're gonna talk about a whole bunch of nerdy stuff what i'd like to do is just set like a real like if you were gonna like you met somebody on the street and they're like brian what are some like key five bullet points where if we look at a pro program that's like pretty solid for hypertrophy, it's going to have these five things in it or three things or two things or one thing, or what are some of those things that jump to mind when we're talking about like key foundational aspects for like a quote unquote good program for hypertrophy? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so maybe these can go in any order here, but um, I think, you know, you got to have sufficient volume. Like you have to do enough. You have to have sufficient effort. You have to be working hard enough. Um, you have to have purposeful exercise selection. I think, I don't know that it needs to be the most nuanced exercise selection, but like, you got to know that a pull down is training your back at some level, um, purposeful execution. So I, I, I put this, I think underneath selection because, or I, I think it depends on the move. I think execution is more important at a base level than exercise selection. Um, but at a base level, understanding what exercises work, what is even more basic than, than that. And then I think that the fifth one, which I think could be argued whether, you know, this is a top five or not, but having some sort of progression plan, awareness of variables for diagnosis of data. And I only say it could be argued because hypertrophy is so forgiving that, you know, people have been getting results, just going in the gym and working really hard and doing enough work. So I don't know that the, the plan is that important, but I will say that a plan at least ensures that you're not wasting time. And uh, from somebody that's analytical, like myself and yourself, I know that that's an extremely important piece as well. Yeah, yeah. I made a list. I always like to, I make a list too, just to like, maybe just to throw some also stuff out there. And my list was enough volume, enough intensity, um, exercise selection that reflects hypertrophy goal, 
and it said um, something where it starts on the easier side and gets harder week to week. Mm -hmm. Some form of progression, which is exactly what you said. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's not like how we go about doing that is, a, is something that we will talk about. But that you are going that that there is a pursuit of more over time. You know, how you're organizing that is secondary that you are doing that at all that you are progressing, I would say, is one of these things. Um, and then we could talk like, you know, general like rep range and like general rest period time. Like if we're looking at if someone's like, hey, this hypertrophy plan is great and I'm doing only 25 to 30 <laughs> reps with 30 <laughs> seconds rest. Like, OK, yeah. at least now we're deviating quite a bit from hypertrophy. So somewhere in that like 6 to 12 to 15 on the most part, for the most part, slight deviations in certain circumstances. And probably like most of the time in that, like I know it's a wide range, but like most of the time in like the one to four minute rest, maybe on the higher end, maybe in a three or four, two to four uh, potentially, but there's a ton of nuance there. But if somebody told me that their program had enough volume, enough intensity, and their exercise selection reflected the hypertrophy goal, and that they were trying to do a little bit more this from week to week, and most of their work was in the six to twelve, and they were resting long yep. enough to 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 make That's the it. target muscle limiting factor, then you're, I mean, man, you're like, we're talking ninety nine percent of the way there. And let's talk a little bit about this purposeful exercise selection and execution. Um, Let's talk about what would what might be like not a red flag in some some like sounding the alarm sort of way, but like what would be an example of doing that well and maybe not doing that as well. Like you mentioned, yeah. like you mentioned understanding that a lap pull down works. You know, a quote lat pull down. It's a misnomer. <laughs> um, it works certain parts of your or your body. I totally agree. Yeah, but yeah. when we're talking about like, okay, I know I need to work my back now. I, now how I do that should reflect a hypertrophy goal. And so, what an example yeah. for me is like. An example for me might be like, okay, instead of doing a push press, I might think, okay, maybe I'll swap this for a seated, you know, well-designed, good arm path, anterior delt press with dumbbells, you know, potentially. And so mm -hmm. kind of how do we reconcile some of what might be better exercise selection in, in a general sense versus worse for hypertrophy? Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with choosing movements that are training the body parts you want to train and giving them sufficient volume. Um, so like, whether it, you're choosing a pull down that is neutral grip and your elbows stay in or a wider one where your elbows flare out. And we know at like a nuanced level that that changes the stimulus for most people. Like I, I'm going to say that it, it, as long as they're executing it properly for, for how that movement should be executed with like good rep tempo and, and control and blah, 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 not too much momentum, et cetera. Um, then, then that's a back movement and that's cool. So I would say like, you know, purposeful exercise selection would be like, well, I'm not going to just do a pronated pull down and then a pronated pull up and then a pronated row. And all of them have the exact same elbow path. Like, even if you don't know what those elbow paths represent, at least you know that, Hey, maybe it makes sense to do like something neutral grip where the elbows naturally will, will travel in and maybe in a wider one as well. And then, you know, maybe I'll do the same thing on a horizontal movement. So we know now through the N1 stuff and through experience that you can still train lats in a row and you can still train upper back in a pull down. So, so it's not like, you know, vertical pulls and horizontal pulls really matter all that much, but starting out, like if you have two vertical pulls and two horizontal pulls, you've got your back covered pretty well. Right. And then kind of the same idea across the body in that, you know, you don't have such dichotomy in your exercise selection that you are biasing, you know, 20 sets of chest and 10 sets of quads when you have no idea what even your volume needs are. Um, but it's cool, you know, when you're young to, to just train chest because that's, that's where the pictures are at. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's probably like a, at a base level, my answer there. Let's talk a little a bit about this idea of like compound lifts versus isolation lifts. Like those words, I think the more we learn just feel like, a 
not the best descriptions that we can <laughs> give exercises. They feel not super helpful at this point. You know, an exercise works a lot of muscles. Like that's not necessarily telling me everything I need to know. Okay, it works multiple joints and it works a, a several different muscles versus an isolation lift maybe works a single joint and maybe more so like a single muscle potentially. Um, but like, does, how do you feel about those two words? Are those words that you consider when you're building a plan or you're like, hey, I'm gonna start with a compound that we're gonna move to isolation. <laughs> Or are you looking at things maybe in a slightly different way? And then I'll piggyback. I know it's a long question, but let's have like that, like maybe using that example of like maybe why deadlifts wouldn't be the greatest mm -hmm. hypertrophy move. And how do we reconcile that? Like it's a compound lift. It's great versus what we yeah. might actually know now about hypertrophy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I don't think you have to start your workouts with compound lifts. I mean, I think if everything is equal and you're trying to train your whole body, like pretty equally, that it makes sense to start with the, with the compound lifts because, because they're, yeah. they're more, they're more centrally demanding. And, you know, unless you're in a really advanced athlete, I wouldn't advise somebody to like do a bunch of dumbbell flies and then go barbell bench or do a bunch of leg extensions and then, and then go barbell squat at, at our level, for sure. Like we can, we can stay in that movement, like mentally engaged and actually get what we're supposed to out of it. But um, the amount of times that like in my youth, I would think that it was a good idea to pre-exhaust my quads going leg extension to back squat. And then, you know, in retrospect, realizing that my butt was just flying up and I was doing a good morning because my quads are toasted. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that, that I ever really think about them as compound lifts and isolation lifts. I just think of them as more, um, complicated, more skill-based and requiring more neurological coordination than another lift. And, you know, the way that we perform movements these days is almost in the sense that even if you're doing a quote compound movement that you're trying to isolate. So we're going to take a back squat and we're going to elevate our heels and we're going to try and get as much knee flexion as we can. And we're going to try and feel that like almost nauseating stretch at the bottom on your quads. And we're doing that specifically to train your quads. We're not trying to just move weight from point A to point B. And that same thing applies in everything, right? Like in an iliac lat pull down, like when I first learned how to do this movement, it was, you know, a little bit of internal rotation at the top because I got to engage full range of motion, full rombro. And then, uh, but also like, you know, you can get more power when you let those teres come in there and you internally rotate at the top, you get more momentum and power driving down. So it really takes like a subtle focus of what is actually happening in your lat um, before that movement can actually feel more like an isolation movement. But no one would ever call that an isolation movement because you're literally pulling with your arm. So you're having elbow flexion occur in there as well. Um, so anyway, those, those are my basic thoughts. Well, yeah, so I love the one thing you said where it's like even – even now in a compound lift, our goal for hypertrophy is still going to, we're still going to have a more specific goal than, hey, let's just fucking work everything. And so if you take a compound lift, you take a dumbbell press, we take a squat, we take a split squat that are going to move multiple joints and have, you know, if you just list the muscles that are worked, there will be multiple muscles on that list. You're still doing them with a specific focus for hypertrophy. I think that, like this understanding of, it's a compound lift, so I'm just trying to grow everything. That's not as good as saying, all right, I'm going to take this compound lift. And listen, when you're a beginner and the threshold for growth is so low and stimulus across the board is so high due to novelty, like you could do a squat and never think about anything and your glutes, your adductors, and your quads, your erectors, all of it's going to grow. Um, but as you get more trained and that threshold for stimulus goes up, we kind of do need to or you would at least benefit from being a little bit more specific towards the bias of these compound lifts. Like I think about – the squat and I think squatting just to squat is going to get you 
to a certain point of growth, let's say. Um, and then we and then we have to pick at some point. Am I squatting for glutes? Am I squatting for quads? Am I squatting for adductors? Am I squatting for uh, optimal performance? Am I squatting for to squat mm-hmm. the most weight? We kind of need to take these compound lifts. Yeah, they're compound, but because something's compound doesn't mean we're just trying to work everything. Doesn't mean that it's like, oh, it's, it's just, you know, we're trying to work a whole bunch of this stuff equally. Like, you're probably going to get to a point, or maybe there's always the point of it would be better if we, okay, we're doing this compound lift, but we're doing it for mostly this. Uh, we want this to be the limiting factor. We want this to get the greatest stimulus. You know, it's not about turning compound lifts into isolation lifts. I'm not, we're not trying to, you know, if you want to do an isolated quad squat you'll do a sissy squat you know like if you you know it's not about turning these compound lifts into isolation lifts but it is about maybe maybe taking a, the idea of compound equaling everything is equal and turning it into like hey it's a compound lift meaning we are moving multiple joints but we can be we can do a little bit better than that and be a little bit more specific yeah absolutely man i mean it's for me it's as i think the main component of why it's so valuable to think of it that way is in like the stimulus to fatigue ratio piece. Um, because I literally like can't squat and deadlift to your earlier point. Um, I like, can't do those even RDL. I can't do those movements anymore. Like just for load to move weight from point A to point B. Like I'm so in tune with the way my body responds to this stuff and the fatigue cost associated that doing these movements in this more specific manner, it just, it's a completely different ball game and you can actually do much more effective volume when you don't have this like non-specific fatigue cost associated. Totally agree. And there's a podcast earlier, if you guys don't not necessarily familiar with like stimulus to fatigue ratio, I'll link a description um, to a podcast I did with Ryan Solomon from Revive Stronger. Really good podcast. If you don't know what SFR is, go listen to it. But kind of TLDR on that is like exercises are going to give you a certain amount of stimulus for the fatigue cost that you have to pay. And if you're doing something like you mentioned an RDL and if or, or some of these compound movements, if you're just doing them for like to move the most load, you might be moving the most load, but the actual amount of growth that you might get in the in the actual limiting factor of that exercise might be low compared to how tired this exercise makes you for lack of a more scientific breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And the perfect example of that is like in CrossFit, I had these massive erectors in my low back because I was literally just deadlifting for time all the time. And, and so I wasn't actually using like my hamstrings and glutes effectively and my low back just blew up. And I don't know if it was a combination of like inflammation and, and muscle, but it was so big. It was like shark fin erectors. And now that I actually like RDL and move properly for my hamstrings and glutes, um, some of that has dissipated. So that would be like one spot where I've maybe lost muscle from CrossFit, but it's way better this way, way better. Yeah. I think for hypertrophy, a, a decent like rule of thumb that you don't need to live and die by necessarily is that like the thing that is the limiting factor is the thing that's being trained. And so if you rack your, your bar after a squat, listen, it's not always the case. The squat is so like centrally demanding and it does no matter what, even if it's glute dominant or quad dominant or adductor dominant, still works everything. So sometimes you can rack the bar and you don't get this like intense sensation in one place, but like generally speaking, you should finish your set and generally speaking, you should know what was the limiting factor. Like, and if you don't know, then there's maybe a chance that you're kind of doing this. I'm just trying to move the most weight and survive and not being at least a little bit. And not everyone's going to know necessarily like they're not going to be cognitive of or cognizant of like their, how their techniques affecting this sort of stuff. But if you're doing a split squat, you're doing a bilateral squat, you're doing an RDL, you're doing a, a deadlift, like, and you finish the set, any set, doesn't matter, any of those exercises, and you have no clue what the limiting factor was, 
that might be something to start to pay attention to and to be able to be a little bit more specific. And again, maybe it's not, I always, I always get into this place where I say something like that. And then I think, yeah, that you totally, I want people to think about that stuff. But I also think there's some element of like offloading some of that to a coach, at least from a programming perspective. Cause I think we can get into this space of like, we want, maybe you, you will agree or disagree, but I want to at least first make sure that my client's form objectively looks the way it should look but and in a way that makes sense for the muscles we're trying to work before I'm worried about like necessarily where they're feeling it I think it's like this one-two punch of like can I get you to get more knee flexion if you're telling me that your quads aren't ripping off the bone okay we'll get there maybe you're just not neurologically efficient yet to that point where you can really be in touch with that but like if I can get you to get the knees forward a little bit more I know that what that's what the quads do that's how the quads stretch and so we're at least in the ballpark and this idea of like if you rack a bar and you're not necessarily sure where you felt it, but you show me a really nice RDL with a subtle knee bend and a neutral spine and a tucked chin and all this stuff, you're going to be very close to all the way there. Like, is that something that you similar that you would subscribe to? Yeah, for sure. I, I always, I agree hundred percent with that. I mean, the caveat would be like, you know, they could look, they could get tons of knee flexion in the squat and then the butt is still shooting up and Correct. they're hinging over as they come up. So they're yeah. sending that stimulus out of the quads, despite yeah. actually getting there at the bottom. Right. Um, but I love what you said about like them maybe not being able to feel it because neurologically they don't have that yet. Like it's so new. Um, I feel like I'd heard that on you, you say that maybe on a podcast somewhere else as well, but, uh, but that's really well said. Yeah. We kept, uh, my group is still in its infancy. We're in our, like, we're about to start our fourth mesocycle. And for the first three mesocycles, we kept a heel elevated quad emphasis split squat in three mesocycles in a row. And it was like, made me sweat a little bit because one, it's a, it's neurologically a complex movement for most people. It's, it's also, it's also not intuitive. It's not something you've done ever. You've never tried to get your knee as far over the toe. It's like the opposite of what you've always been taught. Yeah. Um, and most people have never kept in a movement for up, you know, 15 weeks potentially or more. And so I was a little sweating because you're like, you, as a coach, you're like reconciling the fun factor. I'm like, are people going to be pissed right. off that they have this movement stuck in? But I had people who maybe even had some discomfort, maybe even like slight pain or weren't feeling it in the quads and weren't getting that stretch and weren't understanding what they were working. Three mesocycles later, not only nailing technique, which by the way, takes a hell of a long time with certain like changes in philosophy, specifically this, but also feeling it more just based on this repetition, this kind of skill, this neurological efficiency that was built of doing the same shit over and over. And so another kind of, you know, feather in the cap of like, don't fucking change everything all the time, you know? Dude, yeah. one of the biggest things we have to deal with, you know? Yeah. Um, by the way, regarding time, I'm good till like another 45 minutes if you, Perfect. If you don't need to rush. Same. I don't. I don't. I'd like not, I'd like to not rush. There's so much more <laughs> okay. shit I want to talk about. Let's talk specifically about N1 because I think um, – that, that was not either of our first introductions to hypertrophy. I think I had read many books. I've read, you know, the RP, you know, science, scientific principles, hypertrophy training, and, you know, many other, you know, Brad Schoenfeld's book, and just like a whole bunch of other things that have entered my brain about hypertrophy. But then N1 came about and really kind of shook things up a little bit and started to challenge some of the norms, maybe just mostly, maybe mostly from a biomechanics, but also from like periodization standpoint. So we'll get into that. I'm curious, and I know I listened to your podcast of your takeaways from the practical. So we'll get to that in a second, um, specifically to that in a second. But generally speaking, how would you say N1 has impacted your training slash programming for clients? Those two might be two different things. Yeah, totally. Um, so in many ways, N1 has actually like validated a lot of my biases. So I think that it was a really easy thing for me to kind of grab onto when I first started getting involved with their stuff. 
Um, of course, I've also learned a lot from them. It's not that I knew everything and then they kind of confirmed it for me. Kaz just, but... Kaz just found out what you already knew. <laughs> right, exactly. Kaz <laughs> yeah, has been stalking my yeah. Instagram for years. Yeah. Um, so the anatomy in that course like far exceeds even what I learned from school and it's more applicable, right? Um, the focus on selection and execution have like changed the entire way that I think about movement and programming. Um, specifically, like I talked about in that podcast, I did the, the arcs of motion piece. It was the most overwhelming first day that I could have ever had happen. Like I literally left there and I was like, I don't know anything, you know, but then like the next day it's like, it, it settles in while you sleep or like you kind of just are turning it over in your brain. And literally the next day I walk in there and all the kids in the group, the people in the group are talking about, you know, the prior day and preparing for the random questions they're going to throw at you. And, and I like, felt like I knew them all. Like, it was just like, it kind of clicked and the art, it was the whole arcs of motion thing that the beginning point is the end point of another exercise um that of the antagonist muscle group so that whole thing was just mind-blowing and one of the biggest aha moments i've had in in training in a long time that was it's funny because i wanted to give i did give Cass like a a testimonial and that was something that i just like remember speaking a lot about and i was like all like i could have flown all the way over here done this for court and it's not that i didn't learn anything else of course i did but i had done the courses fucking four times but i had done them all like several times before i got there and so it's not that i knew everything of course not but that to me was like a big aha moment and kind of, kind of what Brian's talking about. It's this like idea of muscles having antagonists, which we all kind of knew to some degree, like, you know, the antagonist of your iliac portion of your lat, which is the lowest portion of your lat would be like antagonist to the clavicular head of your, your, your pec, let's say. And so to find the short position of one would be to find the lengthened position of another. And I think Kaz had even said that to me off air. He's like, yeah, we kind of knew this, but we weren't so sure about it and enough to teach it this way. And so for me, that's been really helpful in um, assessing form videos and teaching the movement, right? And so if I'm trying to, and for myself as well, because for me and you who are a little bit further along in like our proprioception and under understanding of where our body is and all this stuff, like that's been so helpful for me from setting up an exercise. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's difficult to communicate to somebody who's not necessarily like, hey, it's just like, you're, you should be ending in the length and position of your iliac lat. And they're like, that's cool. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? But it has helped me kind of assess things and kind of, I, I, the way I explained it to Kaz was it made it half the things that I need to learn. It cut down the things I need to learn in half. And it was like, I don't need to learn all of these. I need to learn these 10 pairs instead of these 20 things. Yep. And so I thought that was really great. Um, I thought that was, that was my, that was certainly my biggest takeaway. Were there any other takeaways? We'll go, we'll move to the practicals, but I do want to go to like the programming periodization style of things, but anything else from the practicals that stuck out for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it would just be the conversations that I had even outside of class with Cass and then uh, Birdo showed up one day too. And I was able to hang out with Nunez and lift with him too. And uh, I've just been so obsessed with lengthened uh, long muscle lengths on exercises in the last year and change. Like I actually remember doing uh, partial reps on short overload movements before I even found N1. So this is like two years ago. It like intuitively made sense to me. I was like, it's hardest up here. So I should probably do some more work down here. And then it was like all these studies started coming out, um, validating that. And now I'm just like beyond obsessed with it. Not <laughs> there's actually been people that have DM me and been like, dude, people have been doing partials for, for years. You think you're something special. And I'm like, no, I just learned it. Like, I'm just excited. <laughs> I'm about just it, excited. You know? dude. Chill. <laughs> oh, that's right. awesome. Um, but, uh, but that like, so talking to Cassim about, you know, the ways in which we can bias the length and overload was, was huge too. So he, 
brought two ideas to me that I hadn't really thought about prior since I was mostly using just partials. And uh, so we had the reverse drop set, which I've thrown all over my, my story and my page. And then uh, we have one and a half or one and a quarter reps where the quarter or half rep is performed in the bottom of the movement where the muscle is lengthened. And so those two things like being huge. And then through the conversations I had with Birdo, he was like, yeah, I'm going to start instituting some of this stuff too. And so he and I will communicate sometimes on uh, on DM or whatever. And he's, he's a huge fan of it. He's been using the reverse drop set and stuff like that. And then even the careful Dr. Helms has started using reverse drop sets, which is the most amazing um, because I feel like for once in my life, I was kind of ahead of the game here. And it's, uh, it's so vindicating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I the reverse drop set is something that I, I'm not gonna lie. I was the first person I saw was on your page. And I was like, this makes unbelievable amount of sense. Um, and not only does it make an unbelievable amount of, se uh, amount of sense, but it is, it is. Uh, uh, and so one of the things that I took away, one of my big takeaways I wrote was like, just being a better problem solver and being able to replicate stimuli given different circumstances, people that are at home, people that only have cables, people that don't have uh, step uh, people that don't have a hammer strength row so they don't have the ability like yourself they don't have the ability to overload the length of position because you know you guys I see it on my page all the time I love that that machine it's the only machine really outside of Chasm's like Lego yeah, set that, that he thing. made yeah. yeah the landmine thing um <laughs> And so being able to to be creative and replicate certain stimuli in, in different circumstances with different equipment, you know, whether that's via tempo or pre-exhaust or rep schemes, set schemes. And so that's something that I find like was given to me. Yeah, the, I, just the idea, the ability to think through certain things and think, okay, what is the goal here and what are the tools and how can we best replicate that is something that I feel like I'm, I don't know, more confident in now that especially with a group of people that train at home, some people have limited equipment and some people that have limited maybe appetite for the, for the nuances. Can I get them to do something that makes sense to me in my brain that I know is great for them without overloading them with too much information. And so um, definitely, definitely feel you on that. I think reverse drop set is something that I can't wait to incorporate for sure. Um, and just so if you guys are unfamiliar, you can, you can, you can help us out. You can just give us a brief uh, understanding of what a reverse drop set would be and kind of why we might want to overload the length of position. Yeah, for sure. So uh, length and position is, based on studies over the last couple of years, uh, the primary way in which muscles hypertrophy. So if you're looking at something like a pull down or a leg extension, these movements tend to be hardest at the contracted position. So where the legs are straight up or the bar of the pull down is on your chest. The problem is that once you fail a rep where you can no longer get full range of motion, um, you can still do a ton of work in the sub ranges of motion and you'll know a movement is short overloaded because when you fail to make that top range, you'll still be able to get like 85% of the range, then 75%, then 60%. And like, you'll be able to get, you know, five or six or seven, eight reps before you actually can't move the thing at all. If a movement was lengthened, overloaded, think like a bench press or a barbell squat. If you fail at the bottom of that movement, you're not going to get up again. Um, so it's not a movement that's conducive to doing partial reps or even trying to prioritize the length of position because it's already lengthened. Um, but studies are basically showing that, you know, that's where all, where the majority of the muscle is in getting it going. So um, what I've been trying to work on is these different ways in which we can prioritize that portion of the muscle with, uh, with a movement that is usually short overloaded. So in one way we have the partials where you just go until you can't do full reps and then you do partial reps and you just keep going at that point. A reverse drop set is maybe more like a sledgehammer approach to this problem. So 
Um, if you had gone all the way to failure in a short overload movement, then you don't need to add weight because it's already at failure. So you just do partials like my original example. In a reverse drop set, you want to start, you want to stop the set with maybe two, three-ish, maybe four reps in reserve, uh, shy of failure at a given weight. And then you'll increase the weight something like 20%. And you will continue to do reps with the understanding that you probably can't even do one full rep. You might get one, but you probably won't get more than one full rep. And then you'll just hit a bunch of partial reps. So my goal usually is to do an initial buy-in set on something like a cable row, where I would do six to 10 reps, two to three reps shy of failure, add 20%, and then do those partial reps until I get a similar amount of reps to the original set. Um, you could also use like a range of motion stop, but I feel like that's a little more challenging and ambiguous. So I tend to just go for number of partial reps. And during those partial reps, you're not trying to like slam your foot on the accelerator and pull as hard as you can. You're actually trying to make the muscle that you're intending to work do that range of motion for you. And uh, it's just a way to put a lot of tension into an area of the muscle that is honestly often undertrained. If you're stopping movements when you can't do the full contracted position anymore, you're literally leaving that area undertrained. So this is just a little more of a thorough way to do it. And I also think that for those, you know, in our general programs, it not, I haven't programmed upset in a general program, but for general population people, if you don't have a lot of time and you're a capable trainee, this is a great time-saving mechanism too, because you're creating a whole ton of stimulus and a whole ton of tension in a very small amount of time period that you would have to do multiple sets in a row to get a similar effect if you weren't doing this. Yeah, let's let, so I, I so here's my, so I, I'm, obsessed is a good word, with figuring out a way to be efficient. And this has struck me exactly that, as like, hey, we really can get a lot of stimulus in a slightly less time. And that can be just wonderful. I think efficiency is kind of the the world that I'd like to live in the most. I think optimal requires trade-offs of efficiency always. You know, there's a diminished return the closer you get to optimal of anything. And so I love living in this efficient world. Now, when it comes to like programming some of this stuff for a, a, the average person, I struggle sometimes. I'm programming partials for the first time in a, in a, in a group setting this upcoming mes cycle. And I've come up with a, an idea that, that I hope works. So let's go through your example real quick just maybe for my own selfish reasons here. It's like we're doing, let's <laughs> say, a, a cable row, which yeah. is hardest in the short position. Um, and just for your guys' understanding, it's hardest in the short position because the muscle is going to be weakest in the short position. And with a cable row, the tension doesn't change throughout. And so it's, you know, the tension on the cable is the same and it's, you're just going to get weaker in the short position. So it is by definition going to be a short position biased movement. Um, and so you're going to go, let's say, two or three reps in the tank. And your goal of that being fatigue enough in which we can get tired enough that when I raise this load, I can really like more so bias the length and position. And so your goal might be, okay, you get eight when you could have done 10, raise the load by a certain amount. You've chosen 20%. That seems like a reasonable amount. It's enough that you won't be able to do a lot of full range of motion reps on purpose. It kind of forces you into this length and position only movement. Um, and then you're like, okay, I'll match for reps here. Um, do you find that in doing so, there's a drastic drop-off in, like, you can use a subjective, like, displacement of the load, right? You can say, okay, my elbow stops getting here, I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, but you're like, hey, that's going to be a little bit too subjective, so I'm going to try and do eight. But do you find that by eight, that distance, that displacement has changed a lot? Um, and do you find that that is, okay, okay, that was, you're nodding along. So you, you do find that, like, it's not like you're going to get eight similar reps. You're going to get eight kind of descending range of motion reps. 
Yeah. So in the example that I put on my story, and it's actually the most recent post on my feed at the moment, I don't know when this is going to come out. Um, but basically I did uh, nine full reps of a upper back focused row. So my elbows were passing my midline. And then I, I used 160 pounds for nine. I added weight to 200 pounds. Um, and then that's actually what 25%. It's a little bit more. We'll give, yeah, you, yeah. A little, we'll give you a little slack there. 25%. Yeah. Cool. yeah but I did, yeah. I did go to 200. Uh -huh. So, uh, actually in, in the result being that I actually only got seven reps on the partials. So the very first partial rep, I got my elbows to my torso. So it almost looked more like, uh, like a lat focused row than it did like a rear delt row aside from, you know, where the elbow was traveling. But the, as far as the range of motion, it went to about my torso. And then the next one was just shy of my torso. And by the time I got from just shy of my torso to rep seven, it was, man, it maybe three inches. Um, but the key being that like, if we know that that length and position is going to be the most important piece and that it's actually getting weight moving, that's the biggest stimulus for growth. Then I just go out to full extension. I pause so that I feel a stretch and then I just retract and drive the humerus down or out, whatever your goal is. And that's the range of motion that I need. I mean, even if I'm getting two or three inches, it doesn't really matter because that tension is the initiation of that movement. How, how are you progressing that from a week to week? Because that's a, that's, that is a beyond technical failure state that you are in now uh you know whatever again failure at this point takes on many takes on many definitions but technical yeah. failure you can't you can't by definition not doing full range of motion anymore you're actually not doing any standard amount of range of motion because it's actually decreasing as you're getting tired mm -hmm. and so even if you could standardize a partial see that's one way of doing it you could standardize the partial and you could say every partial needs to be here but i can't right. do this and so there are these trade-offs and this, I guess, was a separate question, but there's this trade-off sometimes between objectivity of tracking and, and trackability um, and reproducibility that I think is important. You need some amount of this reproducibility for the average person who's not maybe so in tune with their fatigue uh, management and so in tune with their ability to progress. Um, how are you reconciling that? How are you... How are you progressing that next week? Are you going further, from, further to failure on the initial buy-in set or are you trying to make them both go up, even if, even if them both going up means that second lengthened drop set, so to speak, you know, just gets another couple of even shorter reps added onto it. Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's really important to distinguish between this being my training and not being training that I program for honestly, one-on-one -on -one clients and definitely not for like general programs. Right. So, so this is me speaking about the way I do things. Um, but Kind of like what you said in the beginning, how I've taken a lot of the N1 stuff and I've also have a lot of my own background and kind of created some of my own like programming tenets or whatever. Um, the thing that I'm kind of been big on the last year is this idea of progressing the stimulus. And so at my level of training 25 years in, the feasibility of me increasing weight or reps session to session is is crazy. I mean, if I tried to do the, the philosophical approach to, to progressive overload, where I just kind of wait until the adaptation happens. And then I'm like, sweet, I got stronger, you know, let's keep chugging. Um, I would literally like just probably not train because it would be awful. So what I've done is created this structure in which I feel like I'm creating these small wins for myself session to session. And, um, so more or less the way I would design a mesocycle for myself is that I, I will start at something like one to three RIR, depending on the movement. And over the course of a couple of weeks, I will add weight or reps until I reach a point where I'm at failure, as long as the movement is safe to take to failure. 
And then for movements that are short overloaded, I begin my progression by going, okay, I went, you know, two RIR, one RIR, zero RIR. The next week I'm going to uh, pass failure. So I'm going to do some partials. Maybe it's two or three partials. And then the next week I'm going to look to progress that. And there's a couple of ways I might progress this. I will either see, okay, I improved on my initial buy-in set. Like say I got 10 reps and two partials the, the prior week. Well, this week I did 11 reps. So I'm just going to keep two partials. I'm not going to change anything. I already improved, you know, but say I got 10 reps again, then maybe I'll do three or four partials because in my mind, that's like, Hey, I did something to progress right, the right. stimulus. I moved forward. Right. And you're accepting that reps three and four are progressing the stimulus outside of an objective, same exact range of motion that it's okay. If it descends in range of motion, I'm, I have, I have gotten more stimulus this time than last time. I'm adding if, more yeah, tension. Cool. Yeah. 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 And then, so from there, once I'm at a point where uh, my range of motion on partials is so small that it really doesn't make sense anymore. And I'm like, okay, this isn't actually accomplishing anything. Then I might take that into a reverse drop set. So that would be like the hammer on top. Like, okay, I've extenuated all of my gains uh, from, from these partials. So now I'm going to add a reverse drop set. And then by the time I add a reverse drop set, I'm usually in week six, seven of my, my mesocycle. So maybe I have like one more week of reverse drop yeah, sets and then it's say. like time to yeah. time to deload and, right. and start the process over again. So, so what's interesting about this is that it takes a lot of what I learned from like the early days training in like the more RP or revive stronger style of like, where they go from three to four RIR to zero RIR. And then they do all these like volume manipulations and stuff like this too, which, which I don't do, but I like that idea of progressing effort session to session. So I've kind of taken that idea and made it my own, but done it in a much different manner sort of. Um, so that's maybe a unique aspect to my training. I love that. I love that. I think that it takes, it takes an understanding of you know that there's a certain amount of objective that you, objectivity that you like, where you're like, hey, I did ten and two, and I'm gonna do eleven. I'm gonna stick to two, and that math to me tells me checks that box of like I've done more. But also embracing some of the slightly less objective, where you're like, hey, I did ten and two, now I'm gonna do ten and three, and even if that third one really isn't fifty percent more than the these two, because it's kind of a little, even more of a partial, you know that it was something more. And I, and I like that because it takes a little bit of the emotion that's tied to like needing to objectively see all of the numbers go up all the time and accepting that that won't happen and, and really, I don't know, falling in love with micro progressions and seeking out those micro progressions where an extra rep might not just be in the cards at this st state in the mesocycle. And that might not be in the cards for a number of reasons, because like we said, maybe you didn't start further enough from far enough from failure and four weeks in, you've already gotten to a point where progressing is just not likely at all. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of be able to have multiple tools in the toolbox of how to do a little bit more because sometimes you're not going to survive. You're not going to be able to do another rep. You're not going to be able to add five more pounds, but maybe you can add another partial. Maybe you can add mm -hmm. a reverse drop set. Maybe you can start to add partials. Maybe you can add a myo set. Um, and so I, I like that a lot. I think I think it takes time to communicate that and like remove some of that objectivity and allow for some subjectivity of like, hey, do a partial. Okay, to where? Uh, where you can, where you can do <laughs> right. it, you know? Just work as, just pull as hard as you can. Yeah, yeah totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, let's talk about deloads for a second here. Um, I didn't I didn't give you this in the notes, so I'm throwing you a hot You're one fine. here. Um, <laughs> cool. Let's talk about them. How do you use them? How might, how you use them for a group differ from how you use them for your, for yourself? I know that, you know, N1 has some of their views that I've adopted to some degree and I'm, I'm interested how that's affected, how you look at them. No, for sure. It's super interesting. Um, I'm actually curious how you institute them as well, but, um, 
So the way that I do them for myself, and this was born out of just trying to deload the way that RP does for, for a long time and just really hating being in the gym. The whole idea of cutting volume, cutting effort so low that you're basically just going through the motions didn't really vibe with me. So what I do for myself now is I take a, a frequency deload and this would essentially be that like, so I usually train six out of nine or 10 days and I would just train six out of 14 days or something like that. So I would still train. I'd still train hard. I wouldn't change volume. I wouldn't do anything different. Um, I would just kind of take a frequency deload. Now, if I'm between blocks and I know I'm going to change out some movements or I've extenuated, you know, I've, I've reached that fatigue point from doing those reverse drop sets and I need to do something to kind of reset beyond just taking more time off. Then at that point, what I'll usually do is drop everything down to kind of what my uh, week one example was when I was talking earlier, where everything kind of goes to like one to three RIR, depending on the movement. And um, I'll usually cut volume of lengthened overload movements as well. So if I was doing three sets of RDL, I might do one or two sets, um, things like that. And just kind of basically the whole idea being that you're just trying to create less fatigue under the curve, right? So there's a ton of ways that you can do that. Uh, taking the frequency deload is one way you get more rest days in cutting volume is another way cutting proximity to failure is another way, et cetera. So, so any of those tools are fine as long as they get you less under the curve. Um, but as far as my, my general programs go, um, I'm a huge fan in general programming of doing more of that RP approach. I like to start things at two to three RIR, go down to zero to one RIR and then deload and reset. And I think that that's really important from a general, general population level because um, A, you need people to experience failure. You, you, the amount of times that people, I'm sure in your group programs too, have been like, oh, I must've been sandbagging because I got five more reps when we maxed out or whatever. And you're like, yeah, well now you know. So next mesocycle, when we keep the same movements again, you can start a little bit harder and end a little bit higher. Um, and the deloads that I do in that are, are erring on the side of making sure that people do flush all of the fatigue. So I, I cut volume in half. I, I take proximity to failure down. Um, occasionally we'll use deload as like a, um, an intro week, which it, it is anyways, but, but I'll use it as like an opportunity for people to establish the loads they're going to use for the upcoming cycle. Um, and a perfect example of that is we're about to jump into a metabolic phase in Paragon's physique program. And, uh, we're using the IRM method, you know, six sets of eight reps with a 15 RM. So I'm using deload week to basically establish a 15 RM for them, uh, which is fine. It's just one work set, right? And the volume is super low. So they establish this 15 RM, they work really hard, but it's just one set. It's a short overload movement. It's not a big deal. And then they're still able to recover and kind of, it's not a wasted week, so to speak. I love that. It definitely resonate with a ton of that. So, okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about frequency deload. So in a frequency deload, you might be training six out of 10 days to start six out of nine or 10 days. And you would go to six out of more days, let's say, yeah. would you, are you on the back end of that changing your programming? Is this a mid mesocycle? I'm, I'm beat, but I want to continue this program. So I'm going to take one small step back within this program and go back to my normal frequency afterwards. Yep. That's the idea. So if I'm changing things up, like if I'm changing movements, if I want to reset, uh, like a different stimulus, you know, uh, then by no means am I, am I going to do a frequency deload? It's going to be a more proper deload where it acts as like this intro week to the new stimulus. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if I'm like, so I would say as much as I know the importance of metabolic phases and work capacity and things like that, 
I have a massive bias towards not doing them personally. Um, I just like they're they're structurally challenging to set up sometimes, especially in home gyms. And uh, and on top of that, they just really hurt. And uh, and I really like my rest times and hypertrophy style training. So I usually go through three or four months of hypertrophy before I change that stimulus out. And usually that's a matter of having two frequency deloads in there somewhere. And then you might throw in a different stimulus for a minimum effective dose to return to hypertrophy afterwards. Yeah. 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 I did uh, I did a strength cycle in the fall and uh, I messed it up. Like I, I, uh, I, it was meant to be five weeks. And by week three, I was like, I I'm just done. Like my essential nervous system is done. I, I basically started too heavy on stuff. Like I was using, uh, a basically a top single at like an RPE six or seven. So it wasn't like a hugely challenging top single. And then it would be a percentage doubles after that. And so none of the work itself in the moment was super hard, but I really found like the psychological toll of having to get up for those heavy loads to just be so demanding. And I stopped like within three weeks, I didn't even want to do it anymore. Like I didn't want to get up and go to the gym and have to build up like literally to get to a 400 back squat or a 470 deadlift or whatever I was pulling. Like I had to go like a half hour of warm up, yeah, of like progressive sure. sets just to get there. And it was just, it wasn't efficient at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I this is a, maybe the biggest place where I have, I think about all the time because we have, we have the N1's uh, view on periodization, different stimuli, being able to change stimuli when a certain stimuli becomes less trainable. All of that, in theory, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but when we look at, like, most of what I deal with is people who have a hypertrophy goal. And so I, I think, okay, that means if my goal is hypertrophy, I need to be spending the most time that I can spend doing this until it becomes not trainable or not practical. And then I'll spend as little time not doing hypertrophy in order to get back to productive hypertrophy. And so you very much like, I see a lot of, and we could talk about how this might change with, with nutritional status. I do a, a fat loss programming, quote unquote, is definitely something we're going to chat about in a second. But when thinking about deloads, uh, like the frequency drop, I'm going to pick your brain about that a little bit more, uh, frequency deload. But I, I think yeah. that, I think about, I think about, so right now I, I, so li, uh, I don't know if you're li lifting Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Parker. So yep. I yep. work with Lindsay. She was like, right when I finished N1, I was like, I need to find somebody who does this so that I can just like start to pick somebody's brain about this to have like a direct yep. link to somebody. And so she's been that, that outlet for me. She's wonderful. And so right now we're in like a systemic deload after like multiple phases of let's say mechanical tension or like more traditional hypertrophy training. And I just think to myself, like my goal, I'm still in like eight, nine, 10 RPEs, seven, eight, nine, 10 RPEs, like very similar to my RPE in a hypertrophy phase. Um, and I've, and this idea of like, Hey, like you don't need to take time off. You can still train hard in a different stimulus. There's something about that. that okay. I understand conceptually. I have an ability to gain other adaptations right now that can potentiate better hypertrophy later, maybe through an increase in work capacity and, and, uh, and subset psycho physiological functions. Um, but I also, this idea of of training hard still there's something nervous system wise where like maybe it's just, maybe it's emotional maybe i'm being a little bitch about it but maybe there's a psychological toll psychological of, yeah, 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 and, yeah and maybe there's yeah. something psychological about you know I, I, training hard in this other stimulus makes sense but how much of this adaptation am i gaining in this week in this one week of systemic you know in this one week of systemic maybe you do ampk afterwards and then go back to hyper how, how much of those adaptations am i really holding on to how much are they potentiating for real and now I have two weeks that I'm not doing hypertrophy. Could I 
what's what is the long-term ramification of taking those two weeks and shrinking them into one week where maybe i decrease load a little bit keep intensity high because i think there's some recent research and i think we all kind of know that yep. that volume can take a big hit but if intensity stays high that's going to be the thing that probably head-to-head -head is going to save more muscle let's say and certainly neurological uh, uh, adaptations and so what's the trade-off of, okay, maybe I go to one set of everything, maybe two sets of shortened position work. I'd bring the length and stuff down a lot just to drop mm -hmm. fatigue even more, but I keep my RIR in that like one to three range. Um, and so I keep things heavy and maybe I pair this with an introduction, making this instead of on the tail end of a program, making this on the front end of a program and using this in a practical sense, which does deviate from physiological optimality. We're talking about practical benefits now where I get my clients to, practice the movement that they're trying to do, work on technique, assess starting loads. Maybe it's a totally new rep and set scheme that's like totally throwing them for a loop. Uh, and so what are the trade-offs of, and I'm not saying, I love Lindsay. It's not like a, she knows that I can, I, she knows that I don't need an intro week, quote unquote, that I can look at the moves and conceptualize and, and get going. And so that practical benefit doesn't necessarily apply to me. But I think about that and I'm looking at this program and I'm like, you know, first of all, nobody likes training systemic. There's not a person listening to this who enjoys it. Oh, if you like hypertrophy, you don't like a systemic. If you like systemic. Yeah, if you're a CrossFit person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you love hypertrophy, you hate systemic. And so I just, I just think about some of that stuff. I'm like, how much of this stimulus am I getting and how much is that potentiating future hypertrophy? And could I... Could I, could I expedite this process in some other way where I drop fatigue? Maybe I get a slightly psych bigger psychological benefit. I used to be a big fan of taking full weeks off the gym, especially for people who, especially for people who uh, expressed some sort of psychological fatigue that was great. Um, and after trying it once, we're like, wow, this is going to make my training over the long term way more enjoyable because I come back fresh, I come back hungry, whatever. Um, but I, I wrestle with that because, you know, I have my group, we've been, we've done quote mechanical tension with, we've moved a little bit of the stimulus. We've done some like descending rep, ascending load. We've done some, uh, you know, a little bit more drops, a little bit more, uh, uh, like a metabolic blend. And I think, okay, am I ever going to put these people through a systemic deload? Am I ever going to change the stimulus on these people? And, and, and how much am I, how much are they missing out on that? Are they, are they missing out on us not doing a big metabolic phase? And so these are, these are things that I wrestle with at some point. I'm curious, that was a lot of word vomit, but I'm curious <laughs> on your thoughts on any of that. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I feel all of your, your, your thoughts as well. Um, so for me, my reason to deload is almost always psychological. I like cannot remember the last time that I hit a deload because of a performance drop. What about like a, what about like a like a sleep disturbance or maybe an HRV reading if that's something that you're into like has there ever been other things other than like so psych, it's funny as psychological is actually and oftentimes like like a manifestation of underlying things, right? It's like this low motivation yeah. to train is actually usually like a nervous system response. And so I could see them being blending, but you're, you're kind of saying what I recognize first for you is like some sort of psychological fatigue that kicks in. Yeah. Like I, um, I'm still seeing performance go up, right? Like take a demanding movement, like a pendulum squat where, man, it's just like when you get into those like zero RIR days of a, of a pendulum squat, it's like daunting. Like it, it like, consumes your mind in the like hour or two leading up to it sort of and so i just reach a point where i'm like i don't want to do this set anymore like i've, I've already had two zero rir weeks in a row like i haven't seen performance decrement 
But like psychologically, I don't want to put that weight on my back and have to go to zero RIR again. Like, I just don't want to do that anymore. And so it's usually in those moments where I'm just like, hey, it's it's time for a frequency deload or a, a reset of sorts or whatever it is. But those are the type of things that creep into my mind. And maybe like, maybe it's that I'm mentally weak. Maybe someone who's stronger, like, is like, no, fuck that. Like, I'm going after this pendulum five more weeks in me, bro. You know what I mean? And like, Great. That's awesome for so, you. So really but, quick pause yeah. on this. So here you are several weeks into training and several, probably a couple weeks into really like diabolical training and you're still making performance increases, or at least you haven't seen performance decrement, right? So we're still yeah. in a state where this stimulus seems trainable. And so I'm always curious, like I made an intro to periodization podcast. And one of the things I wanted to get across to people is like, like change in stimulus is it is on a needs basis. You don't, you're not doing this for for fun. If you could train on the same program and make gains forever, you you would at least be able to do that. You wouldn't have, you, you need to have a need. Something needs to uh, be objectively not trainable anymore for you to need to change that stimulus. Mm -hmm. Given the nutritional status, let's say is the same and recover and, and lifestyle factors, other things are all. So I'm curious, like I'm curious, you know, I'm curious. Sometimes I'm, I think to myself, what would Kaz say? You know, like what would Cody say or something? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. because here you are with this stimulus that you're working, that's still progressing and you get to the end to a place where you decide you need to deload for whatever combination of reasons, but nothing is telling you that this pendulum or this, the whole programming, the whole stimulus of the, the entirety of the stimulus of the program, nothing's telling you to change anything. Right. Yeah. And sometimes no, it's a lot. Yeah. Physiologically, you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it comes back to that psychological piece. Um, it's just, it's just the need for something different, man. Like it's it, it, it different. It doesn't even have to be changing the pendulum out. It's like, you know, maybe I was working in the six to eight range and now I'm going to take this frequency deload. And the next time I hit pendulum, I'm going to drop the RIR and go to the 10 to 12 range or something like that. So, um, so that's kind of the thought process I go through when I'm thinking about my own programming. And it always is, it's the, the, the lack of desire to continue pushing a movement or a series of movements, uh, more than it is like a physiological fatigue or a lack of sleep or a low HRV reading or anything like that. Um, my HRV readings for whatever reason are pretty much really consistent all the time in the mornings, as long as I take them, you know, in the same state where I'm focusing on my breathing and things like that. The crazy thing about HRV one aside is that I got really, really sick in Costa Rica a couple of years ago and HRV predicted it a whole day in advance. It dropped like 40 points like that. Still felt fine. I went to the gym, I worked out, I drank beer that night, like all the things. And then woke up the next morning, like sweating and chills and like completely crushed. So, so uh, that was like the moment where I was like, wow, there actually is something to this HRV thing, you know? I've, I've, uh, I was wearing my aura ring for a bit uh, I wore it for a year straight, a ton of similar things. There were times where Aura Ring predicted that I would be sick, and that was 100% like predicted that I would ha was going to have a fever. There was an interesting, I'm curious, uh, I had a, f a couple of friends who were in an Aura Ring study with COVID and were like trying to try, were like it letting them, letting Aura Ring have their data to see if like if they had had COVID and, and looking at prior data, if there was a way to predict it. I'm curious if anything ever came from that, but I, I, I can imagine there's some directional associations of like body temperature increases and HRV going down and stuff like that. Yeah. I have a buddy who tracks his VO2 and it's, he's an aerobic athlete. So he's usually in like the mid fifties. And if you look at his app, um, with his watch that like tracks his, his VO2 or whatever, like very, his very whoop? casually, a whoop but or whatever. Yeah. no, it was an Apple watch, like same as mine. Um, but he, uh, 
he had his his vo2 max drop to 40 oh my god for a whole week when he got covid so you wow. see that like i mean a 16 point drop in vo2 max is insanely large wow. and then it's it's come back up since then so it's just like wow here's covid you know fuck your lungs up yeah uh, how much time you got? Because I got a couple more. We're good I'll, till I'll like a little that. after eleven thirty, so I got like ten or fifteen more minutes. Perfect, excellent. All right, let's do. Um, okay, real quick, let's talk about this. Like, like, oh man, it's not real quick. I always start like that, but it's not going to happen <laughs> like that. Um, all right, let's do this one first. Let's talk about how do we balance some of this like fun and emotion? Because we've had it. We've had a discussion that has clearly had a thread of like, yeah, this is what might be optimal, but here's what might be practical. Like, how, what goes on in your mind when we're trying to balance this like fun slash emotional response or aspect of training with? maybe how it deviates from what might be physiologically optimal. Yeah, it, that's a challenge, man. I mean, there's so, especially running a general program, you get so many, uh, as you would call it, neurotypes, uh, different personality types that are doing your program. And so it, what I've done to try to bridge the gap between people, between these two different neurotypes of like, you know, extreme repetitiveness and, uh, those that really require more variation, yeah, extreme novelty, especially those what like extreme novelty, you know? Like, yeah, and extreme yeah. novelty, right? Yeah. Or those coming from the CrossFit type background or whatever. Is I um, began using something that I call repeating movements. So every cycle that we do of physique has part A and part B are repeating movements, and they're basically just the movements that in any other hypertrophy program would probably never uh, not repeat. Like they just are, are repeating, and they're the, the focus movements, right? So usually these are what you would consider your like common compound movements, um, but there are times where some high stimulus do... movements. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially in like the metabolic phase, we're doing like leg extensions, leg curls, preacher curls, those types of things are, are as repeating movements. Um, but I try to get creative with those so that people are keeping the same movements for 12 weeks, but then in parts C, D, E, F, whatever comes next, uh, we'll switch it out and we'll keep like some circuit stuff in there, you know, supersets and uh, muscle rounds uh, to use Scott Stevenson's term. Um, basically like, you know, five rounds of five reps where you take a 10 rep max, something like that. Um, other kind of novel, creative ways in which you can keep things interesting for people and constantly changing. And uh, despite that, you know, which, cause you can only appeal to so many people, you know, we have some people that are like, wouldn't it be better if like every movement repeated, you know? And then you have other people being like, the repeating movements are too much. I can't do the same movement for 12 straight weeks, you know? So, so these is like the, it's so much of it is, is about the person and what that person wants. And, and usually that person will naturally bias what they do regardless of what the program says. Right. Like if, if you have a program with no repeating movements, people are still going to go off the board and do whatever they want. If or they won't be in your program, you know, or, or they, they won't be in your program. Yeah, yeah. Or you have a program that's all variation. And I mean, I would, I would really have a, a hard time like coming up with scientific backing to, to validate that just from like a diagnosis uh, piece and like neural learning and, and all this stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine a hypertrophy program that just was whatever you do go in and, you know, it's like three sets of back, three sets of chest, three sets of whatever. And you just choose your movements, you know, how crazy. Um, but, um, I think that for us as program creators and, you know, trying to reach and appeal to as many people as possible, that the key is education around the pitfalls of shiny object syndrome. Um, and the more that we can educate and provide information for them as to why it's important to keep things the same, then hopefully that helps, you know? Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm curious if you've experienced this. So let's say you take someone with a little bit more of that, like 
need for novelty state of mind. And you get them to buy in somehow long enough to maybe realize what I'm about to say, which is like this, the enjoyment that like what they thought was fun, which was the novelty they've foregone. And they've decided that because of the education you've given them and that they've bought in and they've given it a chance that they find out that it's actually really fun to see the numbers go up and that what was once fun, which was the novelty uh, stimulus, whatever that dopamine of doing something new um, is actually outweighed by this fun of like objective progress, potentially for the first time, because potentially they've never been doing the same shit for long enough. And so I, I find that that's like a lot of like, I'm like, Hey, give me one month, give me, give it one mesocycle of trying to progress and tell me you don't fall in love with seeing that movement get better objectively via form videos and look better. Right. I love this idea of like, um, paying homage or like paying respect to the movement and seeing the movement get better over time and watching people go from like a, you know, weird rounded back RDL to something that just like looks super pristine. Like tell me you don't fall in love with that and let's seeing the numbers go up. And, and, and if, the, if that still ends up not being something you love, which by the way, I'll also educate you that on average on the spectrum, that's probably better for hypertrophy than the extreme of extreme novelty. Um, if that doesn't do it for you, like you said, people are going to self-select themselves into a program that is not yours or they modify your program without telling you, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with the same. And like part of our um, education piece or part of, I guess, even beyond education, but what we really try to instill in our members is this idea of like falling in love with the process and seeing the improvement. And like we plaster all the time in the Facebook group, like videos of people being like, this was my back squat when I finished CrossFit and here's my back squat now type thing. And like, you look at it and your mind is blown and you're just like, wow, you move like a true, like beautiful athlete right now. And before you were just like doing it for time back of Notre Dame, like just going up and down, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, completely different. And you really just have to appreciate what it takes to get there. And then give yourself the credence to be like happy to, to realize the changes that you've made in yourself. Cause it's hard to see when it's a slow process, you know, you don't see your movement getting better session to session. You have to really have that old video to compare to the new video. Yep. Let's talk a little quickly and then we'll let you go. We're on the tail end here. It's like, well, you guys are running a metabolic phase in, 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 um, in Paragon right now. Is that, yep. do you get kickback of like, Hey, this is, I don't want to do this or, or like, it depends on how much you, depends how metabolic depends how like how much is deviated um are we talking metabolic with like some drop sets or are we talking metabolic with like upper lower superset systemic work <laughs> and so I, i'll throw that to you but like, do you ever get kickback of like this isn't what i signed up for or are you educating them enough that they understand that and trust to be led that in that in that way yeah every cycle that we run uh, especially for physique but most of our programs has a blog that's written describing like exactly what you're trying to achieve in the cycle and why we're doing it type thing. And then I do a like 30 or 45 minute Facebook live Love before that, new yeah. cycles Same. as well, where right. I answer questions and stuff like that. Cool. So, so uh, all of that stuff obviously super helps, but yeah, I mean, for sure we get kicked back on that. Like even Lori herself, the first metabolic phase we ever did, like maybe two, three years ago when we first started physique, she hit me up and was like, dude, this feels like CrossFit. I feel awful, you know? And I was like, yep, that's metabolic training. And she's like, well, I don't want to feel this way, you know? So so like, yeah, for sure we get that. But to be honest, like not as much as you would think. Um, I get way, way, way more kickback about the monotony of hypertrophy training than I ever do during a strength cycle or a metabolic cool. cycle. People love having those like things like this is the one where I'm going to get my heart rate up or this is the one where I'm going to get strong or whatever. But when we're just like doing the shit that's important to gain muscle, 
people are like, this is boring. Like, I don't want to do this. You know? I get so, that, yeah. So there's definitely a fine line there. Yeah, that's very true because when we did a like a descending rep, ascending load, like kind of a neuro hypertrophy blend, like a real emphasis of like, hey, we're here to fucking push load. Like this is, we're trying to build neurological efficiency set to set to get better at this movement and really have some really heavy top sets in a slightly lower rep range. And you're right. People love to, it, it, it's nice to have like a, um, you know, that this have a focus to this. Well, while like hypertrophy is almost like you said, you said something in the beginning, it was super forgiving. Hypertrophy is like very forgiving. And it is probably feels like at least like a wide, the widest of the circles potentially. Um, that might not be true. That might be just from like the inside looking out, but, um, but that makes a lot of sense. How long are you guys running a metabolic phase four? So everything we do at Paragon, just to keep everything in line with everything else, <laughs> is a five-week meso with a one-week deload. So it's a five-week strength cycle, then a deload, then a five-week metabolic cycle. So everything's just in five-week increments. And uh, again, it's that it's that finding that appeal for the masses as much as possible. You yeah, know? I love that. That's that's so far how things have been. People are like, how long in the meso? And it's like, for now, like from a scheduling purpose and from a yeah. real lifestyle of the average person, I'm like, Hey, let's, we're going to keep these math. It's like, if we're doing five week, this, then a two week systemic, then a one week AMP, then a three week neuro phase, then a four week, this, then a six week that it turns into something that maybe gets 1% better physiologically, but is a real mind fuck for people like applying it to their calendar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for, uh, for all those that want to deviate away from something like that, that is, that is a general program. Um, I am just in the process of dropping the follow my program program, which is literally all the things that I talked about today. A lot of that, like super in-depth nuance of exercise selection and exercise execution and training six sessions over 10 days instead of, you know, five week mesos. And, um, it's just, it's, it's literally my programming. So if anyone is, is interested in, uh, in doing the the things that the someone with 25 years is doing you know it may not be the right program for you but um i'm kind of excited about having something out there that's different than the appeal to the masses type thing like i like that it's maybe not appealing to the masses but might appeal to to some people oh yeah it's, it's an outlet for you to cultivate a slightly uh, to cultivate people who are going to be more excited about that and and let you gives you gives you an outlet for that which i love that's awesome yeah and um, there's no like uh things i need to follow like no parameters you know and they can't be like you know well this needs to be this way like uh it's just this doesn't appeal to the masses this way so you need to change this to this it's like no nah, we'll just do things my way and yeah, people can yeah. do it or not it's totally it different focus of like instead of appealing to the masses like you guys can come if you want to hang right, out right, and right. do my program like i'm not changing <laughs> it for you you know yeah, right. yeah, I wanted to. I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you plug some stuff, but we'll talk. Maybe we'll talk another time about like this, like asymmetric, non-week oriented mesocycle mm. uh, program. We can talk about it, dude. My mom, my mom's actually here babysitting, so we got a few. I got. I had a call 30 minutes ago that I pushed off, so we're gonna run. Cool. Do it. No, you're good. You're good. But I do love that idea of like of like running mesocycles that aren't necessarily so tied to the week. And something you said, which was like feeling less beholden to the schedule because it doesn't like you don't have this weekly box to check necessarily because it's a little bit asymmetric it's cool something we'll talk about another time yep, plug yep. a whole bunch of shit tell people where they can find you i'll plug your program uh and i'll put everything in description so let people know where they can cool. find you appreciate it yeah um best place is probably on instagram at brian borstein you can also find me if you can't spell my name by uh typing in evolved training systems and then i own uh, evolved training systems and paragon training methods with Lori christine king um, Paragon's probably slightly more geared toward the female. It's a little bit more, uh, glute dominant, a little bit less chest dominant evolved is going to be a little bit more even across for all of the, uh, for all the males and females a little, I know your program's a little more even too. So, so I have one of those. And then, um, the follow my program program drops on February 14th. 
I'm sure this will have been out by then, but um, that's through Paragon and uh, that's probably, oh yeah, I have a podcast. I totally have a podcast, Eat, Train, Prosper with uh, my co-host Aaron Straker. So Awesome. I was waiting. I was like, and you have a podcast. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Cool, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Super fun chat. And I'll uh, obviously I'll tag you in everything when it comes out. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.